Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Ben Reinhardt. Ben is an independent researcher and hosts the podcast, uh, The Idea Machines podcast, uh, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So, Ben, we're, we're here today to talk about uh, innovation, the different ways to fund innovation, uh, cultures that lead to innovation, uh, progress studies, research. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of topics we want to get into. Sort of by way of introduction, you sort of have an interesting background. Um, as, as you think about the different experiences you've um, you've done or undertaken, especially you know recently in the last year, last two years, what is sort of the thread that you've you've kept on pulling? What, what's sort of the thread that uh, that underlies your your curiosity? Yeah, this is this is going to sound um, a little a little crass, but like I, I ask myself of that a lot. And eventually it just came down to the fact that like, I really want there to be more awesome sci-fi shit. Like at the end of the day, like that's, that's what I want to see in the world. And, you know, like, I, I think that there's, there's a lot about everything else, but it's just mostly like, how do we, how do we get more, more of that like Star Trek future to happen? Yeah. And what are the, um, what are the biggest bottlenecks right now? Why, why don't we have uh, that, 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 that sci-fi vision? Well, like, if I if I could if I had a really like sort of like trite podcast length answer to that question, I I would be be very very happy. Um, I I think at the end of the day, it's extremely complex, and there's like there's there's no there's no single answer. Um, and there's you know I, I think many people, including myself, like trying to answer that question. Um, but yeah. it's like you know it's I, I think one thing that I've been looking at is that I think like these, the theories around it sort of fall into like three buckets. So I'll, I could just like tell you the three buckets and like within those buckets are like this like massive amount of complexity. So one, one bucket is kind of this idea of um, like, uh, I would say like individual incentives and that, that bucket is, is things around like, well, you know, researchers are incentivized to to pursue all these things that aren't leading to to amazing outcomes. People are like misallocating their their labor in, in different ways. Um, another bucket is sort of the the systemic decay or problematic problem bucket, um, and this is looking at things like okay, like what's happened to to academia, the decline of R and D labs, everything in there. And then like the third bucket is. Uh, what I would just call like the we've picked all the low hanging fruit bucket, um, and and that may be you know it's it's sort of like this null hypothesis of like well you know it's it's uh, just not as easy to to build that future as um, as we once thought, and I'm 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 hopeful that that bucket is not the the correct one, but we will see. Well, you don't have in there unless it is somewhere in there or what you just didn't mention it, is, is culture. Yeah, no. Um, so uh, like, that's absolutely a, a good point. I, I would, I sort of like in my mind, I, I would put that in like sort of the, the systems bucket where like culture is the, the highest level of the, the sort of like hierarchical systems. But yeah, like you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and I, I think that culture may be uh, one of, both the, the most important and and hardest to change of all of those pieces. Yeah. So let's let's go into the buckets individually. So on the incentives, the, the first one is is that or the sub buckets underneath that sort of different funding models, but then also sort of you know ideas of of how you capture value. Um. So the the way I would describe it, and are just sort of like all the ways that basically it's like the sort of the idea that that like smart ambitious people are not spending their time effectively and asking the questions of like why aren't they doing that um so it's it's everything and so let me just um preface this with that like i i'm i'm sort of like trying to try to present all the different arguments and like these arguments are not all coherent and i don't 
agree with all of them, but it's it's sort of everything from from the arguments around that, like, well, uh, researchers are spending them, their time going after sort of like really sort of quick to complete tasks that um, yield papers really quickly and and let them get grants really easily. Um, so like uh, uh, Jerry Newman had a, a pretty great article on this called One Process, um, where it, he he basically argues that what it might be is that you're just seeing like sort of everybody's crowding the really quick to pay off applications. So like that's that's one example. Another one might be it's like all the smart people are going to work in finance or consulting, right? Like that's that's another sort of thing that falls into that bucket. So it's like why why are people not spending their time making air quotes correctly to to get more more awesome stuff? Yeah. What are stabs that, or what are, what are some potential solutions or alternatives that you're excited about that either exist or, or should exist or Yeah, about- well, I mean like so some of the stuff that that you're doing with Village is like really sort of like in the right direction of like okay, like let's sort of encourage people to use themselves to to the fullest potential. So like stuff that you're doing, uh, sort of like the, what, what Matt Clifford is doing at EF and then sort of more, more broad efforts to try to address like citation obsession among scientists and just sort of like any, any of these things that try to address the, the individual incentives. I think maybe like things like 80,000 hours um, are other sort of good efforts in this direction. What, what is 80,000 hours doing that, that is uh, effective here? Well, uh, <laughs> like, so I, I actually don't know how effective they're, they're being like, so, but just in terms of uh, sort of like pushing in the right direction, it's at least asking like sort of sounding the call for people to take a step back and think about what they should be spending their time on. Totally. Yeah, I know that that's, uh, that's underrated. Um, I, I agree. Let's venture capital a little bit. You, you, you know quite a bit about it. what do you think are sort of the, the limitations of venture or how would you, you like to see venture perhaps evolve or what's perhaps the right scope of venture? Because I think there's this broader question of, right, like what, what is the right you know, funding model for certain you know, research yeah. or certain, or certain so, science? Yeah. So I, I, think, I think venture capital was sort of an amazing innovation, right? Like how many awesome things exist because of it. And I'll sort of go through the constraints on, on venture as I see it. And I want to make it really clear that this is not like, uh, it's not actually a way that the the system is, is broken um, in, in any way. It's just sort of like, these are the, the constraints that people have to operate under, which is one is like at the end of the day, uh, as as a venture capitalist, you are trying to make money for your LPs, and so the the LPs want to make money, and they they have many other places that they could put their money, including the stock market. So you basically have to handily beat the the much more sort of low risk stock market. So that's 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 one constraint. It's just like you need to to have a certain rate of return. Um, obviously, there's these the structure of of venture funds where they need to make that return in a certain amount of time. And that just just limits the sort of the, the scope of the projects, right? Where anything that you fund needs to either uh, have an exit or, or be able to, to produce some liquidity by the end of the fund, except in like extraordinary circumstances where you can just say like, okay, uh, we'll, we'll keep this rolling. And then at the end of the day, it's like, I think venture is like it needs to fund for-profit companies that are are making a product, and those those companies, as they should, their their goal is to to capture as much value as as possible, or rather to like capture enough value to to make ridiculous returns. And so, the things that I worry about venture as a mechanism for for funding are things that are just like what I would call just bad investments, right? And, and that for, like from a, a return on capital perspective. And these things, they're, they're just some things where they don't they either produce something that it's very hard to capture its value or 
there, there are other things where if you try to capture the value, the, the total value ends up being much less for, for that. So like, if you could, if you imagine that uh, somehow Xerox was able to, to like really heavily patent the idea of like the, the mouse and the graphical user interface, I think that the, the world would be much, much poorer today for that. Like, so, so, like Xerox was was unable to capture much of the value that that Park created, and I think that part of the reason it created so much value was because they did not capture it. So, so those are those are some of the just the constraints on VC. Yeah, and do you have you seen any interesting solutions to try to sort of innovate on how we capture value, such that the things that are creating a lot of value today that don't capture it don't capture more of it, or is the idea that we should get away from just thinking about capturing value? in that sense yeah. and, and motivate people. Yeah, I mean, so, so the, like if we, we think about the knobs that you have to play with, I think sort of one of the, the most tunable knobs is um, like the sort of the, the time scale. And, and so you see things like um, the engine out of MIT. Um, and I believe that they have a, a 15 year fund. So that's like 50% longer than sort of like most of the longest uh, VC funds. And that, hopefully will allow them to invest in projects that other, other VC funds would, would not be able to invest in. Um, they're still very early, so we haven't seen results yet. And then another knob is sort of like the, the returning profit knob. And so there's, there's an organization called, uh, I believe, the Prime Coalition, and they're a sort of like a nonprofit VC fund. And so they, they get money from foundations and they promise those foundations that they'll invest the money in companies that are working directly on climate change. And so if they, if they make a return, that's great, but those foundations are not uh, sort of demanding the same level of returns. Uh, so, so those are two of the knobs that I've, I've seen played with well. And then both, both you all and, and EF, I guess, are, are sort of playing with the, uh, at what point do you invest knob? Right, so so most VCs invest in companies, but but you all are sort of pioneering in the idea of investing in in people before they even do anything. So I, I guess like those are all like pretty exciting ways that that people are, are playing with the different knobs there. Yeah, and, the, and a couple others I have to bring up. ClearBank is interesting in that it's basically enabling debt finance easier, or or sort of um, re, you know revenue share as opposed to taking away equity. Um, for people who are building businesses that are um, that they don't that have product market fit, they don't need to give up equity. They just it's just a cash flow problem, and nice. so they can sort of pay back. And then also is um, NDVC is sort of exploring this model where I don't I don't know exactly what they're doing. I, I just know that you don't need to shoot for unicorns in, in their model, and that there's much more they, they present much more optionality and have sort of different clauses such that. You know, it's not a failure if the founder only sells for fifty million dollars or or a hundred million dollars if if they raise a bunch of money. Yeah, those are those are both awesome. I I think I haven't paid as much attention to them because I guess the the things that I'm focusing on, and this is obviously not the only place to to focus, but the, both of those models do require sort of like a slightly lower risk profile than what normal VCs would take on. And uh, I'm actually interested in sort of like the, the even higher risk profile, right? Like the, the stuff that, you know, it's like might not even end up in a product, let alone a profitable, pro- profitable product. Yeah. So w- what are the homes for th- those today and where, where could, uh, you know, or what could new homes be or like if you could wave a wand and. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good, a good question. I, I think my, my hypothesis right now is that they don't, really have a home that at least there's no default home so so in some cases you you have a just like super wealthy founder or backer uh who's who's sort of like willing to to bankroll things until they become they they sort of like the risk decreases enough to become normally venture fundable right and that's that's sort of the the mode like elon musk's modus operandi and and you see you know a lot of very notable billionaires funding different things. So that's, that's, that's one home. Some things fit into uh, sort of the, the corporate research lab 
model, right? So I think uh, Google DeepMind is a good example of that. So if like people see the 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 AI uh, version of it, and then yeah, like sometimes people like manage to eke them out in university labs, but my my concern is is like th- these are really the things that that don't have a, a good home, and so I am trying to figure out like how to how to build them at home. Yeah, and it, it, let's say you know the government or somebody gave you sort of you know uh, no strings attached money to create this this home for maybe that's the wrong question. Like, what what, what could potential homes look like? What like what are within the constraints of, of the real world? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's good. I, I I appreciate the constraints of the real world. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of sort of knobs to to play with there. The idea that's really attractive to me and that like I'm actively pursuing is the idea that you could sort of borrow from 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 DARPA's structure and have a, a sort of like a, a coordinating mechanism that puts together programs and either by sort of like by hook or by crook gets money from uh, philanthropy or some some other sources um, <laughs> that I haven't quite figured out yet. And basically, like, I, I guess the hypothesis is if you can a, a much more uh, clear and precise plan than sort of just like, oh, we'll do some some cool stuff. Like if you if you have a really clear, precise plan, it might be easier to to get money. And then also sort of like the idea of an organization that is like a company in that it does sort of like centralized work, but like a more like a nonprofit in that it's like not seeking to to produce a product. And I realize that this is this is sort of fuzzy um because it's still sort of you know being being made up as we go along. But like that that really is the the question of you know it's like how do we bring back or or how, how do we how do we create an environment that is sort of like sits outside the constraints of uh, like academia, corporate R and D, and like for profit companies, and like that's I, I think I I know that that's the question. I am not sure that I have a great answer yet. What, what's the closest thing to that? Oh boy, so so there there's a there's a couple of organizations that that uh, sort of defy the constraints in in different ways. Like so, so one is uh, I'm sure you know about like the the HHMI Genalia campus, which it's like very focused on research and but like they they don't require people to publish papers while they're there. They're just like just do some awesome research. They like don't require people to like continually ask for grant money. So they just like we'll fund you straight up five years. Go do that. That's one example. I think uh, there's there's an organization in, in San Francisco called Other Lab. They've done they they just sort of like work on projects. I believe they're primarily funded by government grants, but the sort of like uh, the the umbrella organization takes care of that so that people can can just work on on stuff. And then recently, uh, Welcome Leap launched that they're they're sort of like creating a um, like an ARPA like structure for for pharma. Um, and that that was launched I, like a few months ago. So like I don't think anybody really knows, or at least I don't uh, know very much about what they're doing. But that that seems very promising. I think sometimes is is Google like compared to Bell Labs? Or like what are, what are sort of the trade offs between either of those sort of examples? Yeah, like like sort sort of um, like Google X versus Bell Labs. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think one thing to note about Bell Labs that many people forget is that Bell Labs was not particularly profitable. And there's a a fairly compelling argument, I find, that Bell Labs was basically just um, like chaff to to throw off antitrust regulations. So 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 AT&T basically said like, okay, we'll we'll like let anybody use non-telecom related patents from Bell Labs, so that we won't get antitrust lawsuits against us. So, 
So, so one is like just the motivation for Google X versus Bell Labs, I think is different. So like from, from the, that top down, like I think Google X has more pressure to, to produce product basically. And from what I can tell, like I, talking to to a couple of people there, it's, it's not like they don't have a lot of people on staff whose job is just to sort of like sit around and do research. They, they come up with a a project idea and then they like get some people together and then they see if it's feasible and they, they go do it. And so sort of just like the, the structure of how projects come about and the requirements that are placed on them is different. And then I, I think also there's the, like you mentioned culture earlier. I think this this is a cultural difference that has happened in our society and is also true at, at Google X, where we've really come to embrace this culture of like you know like iterate fast, MVP, like get stuff out there that works sort of very well in the software world. But I, I'm not sure how well it works for like you know, kind of like paradigm shifts in atom-based technology. And I think that uh, from what I've, I've seen, Google X really does sort of embrace this iterative MVP way of thinking, which is, is good in some situations, but may not be the best for sort of paradigm shifting research. Totally. Let's, um, let's talk about uh, sort of the, the second bucket more about like system decay What's happening there? What's most interesting to you? Maybe we start with academia or we start elsewhere, but what are sort of the, the biggest challenges you, you see? Yeah. So you've done a ton of work on this where it's, it's, it almost like goes just back to like institutions in general are across the board running into a, a lot of problems. And I, I think the specifically in terms of like, of, of research, it's a combination of, I think, too much pressure being put on academia. Like it's expected to not only sort of probe the structure of the universe, but also to produce like cool technology and basically to like get everything all the way up to the point that you can wrap a, a C-corp around it and, and start selling stuff that's like one really sort of high level systematic problem. But then another, I think is just like, and and to the culture point, like we just, we don't trust institutions anymore. And so what, and and I, I think that um, to sort of do these projects, it really does require a lot of trust. And because like you're, you're sort of like any, any paradigm shift, as you start it is going to look really stupid. So, so there's that piece. And then another sort of part of, of that bucket, I think that people don't talk about as much generally is just regulation, right? So regulation is very good at creating uh, sort of like paradigmatic lock-in. And it's a little bit insidious because like the goal is to keep people safe and to save lives. But if you, look at the regulations that are on the books today, uh, we could never invent like automobiles, for example, right? Because they need to conform to a, a certain form factor and use a certain set of materials and have a certain safety standard. Um, and so it, it may be that just like our overuse of regulations is, is putting too much friction into the system. Do you see a world in which some of them get unwound, so to speak? Or what is sort of the way out on, on the regulation front? But I don't know. The problem is that sort of every regulation is there for a, a good reason. Um, and usually that reason is to keep people safe. Uh, I think the, the issue is that to keep everybody perfectly safe, we would all need to be in like hypoallergenic bubbles and and never do anything but you can't really make that argument and so it's like it's it's hard to have a conversation about sort of like safety trade-offs and i think that this is sort of where the the urge of people like um the the seasteading foundation comes from to be like okay we need like a new place that 
like has like flow of regulations. I'm not convinced that that that's going to work, but I think like that's where that intuition comes from. But I, I don't know how concretely we, we really get there. Totally. If you could wave a wand and change anything about how the incentives in, in academia for, for some of these, you know, the things that we care about, what might that look like? Oh man. <laughs> like get rid of peer review like so so one get rid of peer review Two, get rid of sort of the accountability around government grants like like literally just let the people giving grants be like hey like this research looks cool and i'm going to give you give them money i think almost like getting rid of departments because that that really constrains people like i think breaking the the research piece of academia out of the rest of the university seems really promising and then like making it so that somehow like like so so just to to take a step back so everybody knows it's like the the job of a professor is primarily not doing research it's primarily like managing research bringing in money teaching, doing administration. And so what ends up happening is that like people who are just really good at research and just want to do research end up sort of dropping out of academia. So somehow having sort of like a a pure research track in academia that's like just as high status as as being a professor. I think and and also just like get rid of all the administration. <laughs> like like just fire all the administrators. I'm, I'm sorry to any administrators who are listening to this, but and where, where do you, where is the the biggest bottlenecks from in terms of actualizing some of the things that you you talked about? Like, is 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 there unlikely to be any, uh, sort of change from within, and you just have to build alternatives, or wh- how do you how do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think it's really it's one of these like tricky coordination problems. Maybe the the biggest bottleneck is that there's there's really no alternative. So, so right now it, it's basically like the, the question is it, when you're doing your PhD, the question is like, do you want to be in academia or do you want to be in industry where industry is this broad term that encompasses everything from like startups to IBM. And so like maybe the biggest bottleneck is that there's, there's no sort of exit option right? Like, so there's no way to do the the things that people go into academia wanting to do outside of this whole bureaucratic uh, incentive laden structure. And I think like maybe, maybe one of the, uh, another like bottleneck is just the, the way that money works. And so this, but like, like any suggestion that involves like government policy change, while this is a single point suggestion, it is unlikely to happen. But like, if the government changed the way that they gave out grants, or just like the the money that funded research stopped coming from the government, because at the end of the day, we, we do sort of want the way that the government gives out money to be fair and accountable. But anytime you have a fair and accountable process, there's there's going to be a lot of paperwork that needs to go along with it and a lot of due diligence that needs to be done with it. Um, and then that's what, and, and also you want metrics, right? And so it's like metrics can be gamed, paper and due, paperwork and due diligence lead to a lot of bureaucratic overhead. Um, and so we we end up where we are. And so it's almost like this fundamental tension around government funding that like, on the one hand, you want government funding to be fair and accountable. And on the other hand, that demand for fairness and accountability leads to all these other problems. Yeah. So what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is, so, so my one, like, so f- the first step is just like acknowledging that these, like these wicked problems exist. Like, so step one, I think what we, we need to do is say like, okay, like these are actually like really, tricky problems um but then like optimistically go at them um and then so so 
one one thing so that that I'm trying to do is just to say like okay like what would a some kind of structure outside of academia look like that maybe doesn't get its money from the government is maybe philanthropically funded um and so it and like doesn't doesn't give out grants but actually like just goes about creating things in a different way so that's that's one thing and then the other is like going back to the culture point is like somehow we need to build up one is just like optimism and and like almost just like holding people accountable for like why things are not moving faster right so it's like like if somehow we we literally held everybody in in congress and at the nsf like actually accountable for the fact that we're we're like not seeing the the output that we possibly could like that could put pressure on people but but just like yeah i, I think it uh, as like like culturully wanting like so, sort of like really seeing like what could be and embracing the fact that the the system does not necessarily have to work the way it always has worked and and just sort of like constantly hammering that drum and and i guess the the other piece is like like so what i'm not actually advocating is like burn it all down and build it up again like i i i think that we don't take a serious enough look at like how do we like make the the institutions healthy and trustworthy again as opposed to like completely going around them well that's what it seems that it's a time to build ethos it uh, yeah. i feel like is sort of yeah mostly on, on trying to build new ones just because it's maybe giving up on on existing ones yeah so so it's like, I, I think and and i don't know where to come down on this like it, 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 i think it's it's really a discussion of like what needs to be rebuilt and what needs to be like maybe like i guess like pruned we never talk about pruning institutions what, what do you think about that like like just sort of like instead of saying like okay let's burn it down like like this there's been some overgrowth let's like prune it back and and see what grows in its place yeah it's interesting uh, on, on my conversation with jose he was talking about i think it was jose maybe it was someone else of the nih um i think it was the nih um and basically he was just saying that our funding you know, mechanisms are just way too centralized and if if we could have more it is just too big and if if we could have just more decentralized versions we would you know have more cre- creativity more diversity or more yeah, yeah eccentricity in, in some sense yeah i would i would say, i would i would um riff on that by saying we want more uncorrelated more uncorrelated work right so it's like you could have the most decentralized system in the world but if like everybody in that system uh sort of has the same incentives then not that much interesting things will come out but yeah i i think that that's that would be really helpful I think it, the question is, it, it always goes back to this tension with sort of accountability, right? So it's like, like I, I assume there, there would be some political troubles if like the NIH just like picked, you know, a thousand people like Jose and was like, okay, here's, here's a couple million dollars for you to go, go fund research, right? However you want. Yeah. Yeah. It's like scouts for, for that. That's interesting. Well, like the Federal Reserve is supposedly like separate from the government, right? In uh, supposedly <laughs> yeah it's interesting is is there a government that does this like way better than we do i don't think so honestly like the i think the issue is is partially that like every government basically all, their their research system is modeled on the u.s for the most part i i think china is good really good at sort of the unregulated scale up piece actually related to china and regulations one 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 thought of that that i was i was thinking the other day is like apparently this is just anecdotal but like it it usually takes them about 7 years after the introduction of like a new technology like like online peer to peer lending before they regulate it and so one thing i was i was wondering is like what if we just like had a rule that we couldn't regulate any new technology until it's like been out in the wild for 7 years and 
this may make people feel really uncomfortable because it's like, oh, like there could be like this just like, you know, self-driving cars like running people over for seven years. But like that's that's a, another way to to approach the regulations where it's like, OK, we'll regulate it, but we need to actually like see what it will do first. That's one thought. But yeah, like China, China's very good at sort of scaling innovative new systems. And I think at least giving researchers more free reign in certain areas like, like human genetics. But I I haven't seen anything like, like super, super new and interesting come out of their system yet. But uh, there's a, I, I don't, I don't read Chinese. And so it's like, I am not paying attention to, to Chinese papers. And two, I think that they still, they, they're start like, they've only started to reverse sort of like the, all the, the good researchers coming to the U S all, like all countries really do. And also, I guess the, la- the last point is that like academia as a system is like pretty international, right? Like, like, all, like researchers all over the world are all trying to publish in the same journals and all care about peer review. So it's almost like not even a, a national level thing. Totally. One thing you, you've looked a lot into is sort of the, just the history of our current innovation structures. I'm curious what you've, what you've learned that's, that, that sort of informed how you, or evolved how you think about some of these, some of these things as you've studied sort of the, you know, some of the different, yeah history. i mean let's see I'm, I'm i'm trying to recreate my 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 perception of things when i started versus now i think i think one and and jason crawford is is really good at, at pointing this out is that the way that inventions and innovations happen is never as uh straightforward and linear as we sort of culturally think it is right like you know, it's like sometimes someone creates something in a lab that then gets commercialized, but sometimes someone just like is tinkering around and they discover a thing and then people in the lab like uh, go and like help make that thing more efficient. And sometimes it's like, it's that someone in invents something and then like someone else steals it and then then it goes to a lab. And, and so like, it's just like the, the process is, is uh really messy that that's one thing um i think the the other thing is that uh i've come to appreciate how uncomfortably crackpotty everything really seems I, I think we sort of have this narrative that things would be invented inevitably um but but i've come to not actually believe that's true that the, there's actually like a lot of contingency around uh whether whether innovations happen so that's that's another thing that that i've i've really sort of changed my mind on that's really interesting when we talked about capturing value a bit earlier and the sort of difference between capturing value and creating value how strong is is the coupling between the two or like are you excited about mechanisms by which we can better align, align that coupling so yes i am uh excited about mechanisms that could better align that coupling. However, I, I think I like, and I don't, I don't have a, a ton of evidence to back this up, but my current belief is that there's only like, some things are just bad investments in that there, there are just some things that if you like that, you just can't capture the value. This, this happens so much with like tacit knowledge that, comes out of a lab where it's like who really came up with the thing we're not really sure and and, and a reason that I, I worry about that quite a bit is that I think what you've seen with IP is that you can sort of get into these situations where the to like create this amazing thing you need like five pieces of IP and each of those five pieces of IP are all owned by someone different. And none of those universities or companies have the incentive to, to bundle them together to, to create something amazing. So you take like Xerox, for example, and, and they like created the Xerox process. They had seven years before 
they like they even filed IP on it. Like so so they they weren't worried about that. And like in those seven years, they managed to create like I think it was a couple of dozen different pieces of IP that all went into the the original like Xerox copier machine. And so if you imagine uh, Xerox today, there's no way they would be able to go seven years without filing IP. And if like the the minute they filed for like one piece of the puzzle, then you know five other groups would probably patent all the other pieces of the puzzle. And so it's like, would we even have the Xerox copier? I don't know. Um, so so that's all to say that I'm I'm just sort of skeptical that a a focus on value capture will actually lead to the the most value creation. And it's just like there's there's these things that have these massive externalities. And it like one of one of my pet theories is that the like as we get more technology, the number of externalities in the world, both positive and negative, has increased. And we like just like all, all like our legal systems and and our social systems are sort of like not set up to deal with those. Um, so that's that's just like an abstract musing about that. Yeah. Speaking of musings, as a segue, uh, Eric Weinstein's view on on tech uh, versus science. I think sometimes he says uh, you know tech should be the younger brother of science or, or, or something. But what is sort of your your perception of that? Yeah, I I, I don't agree with him. I think that that viewpoint is like a very like that that came from the basically the Manhattan project where like that was like sort of like your your most beautiful expression of like people discovered some phenomena like fundamental physical phenomena in a lab and then they figured out how to harness that and then they like analyzed the theory and realized that it should be possible to like bring two pieces of uranium together to to release a massive amount of energy and then they realized that they could create a bomb out of that and they went and did it um so like that's that's sort of like the the classic basic to applied research pipeline but if you actually look about look look at how like the 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 relationship between science and technology it's like it is very complicated right like so so you look you know it's like the counter example is thermodynamics right where you you have some some guys and they they're like whoa if we like heat up the steam it creates a vacuum and we can create an engine out of it and then the scientists came along and they're like whoa you're like doing this thing i wonder how that works and then you create the entire science of thermodynamics because uh this technology sort of illustrated it and the way that i've i've been thinking about this is is it's all about uh like natural phenomena and exploiting natural phenomena and sometimes uh we just sort of like discover these phenomena by accident right like you know it's like the person's been brewing beer for hundreds of years with like this stick that like they they put in the the brew and um it magically turns into beer and then you know, someone comes along with, and, and like that person has already exploited that phenomena, right? Like they've exploited the phenomena that like yeast creates alcohol and you can, you can use that. And then like someone with a microscope comes along and they're like, oh, like, you know, it's like the reason that you can exploit this is because of this, like this yeast. But then sometimes science does discover the phenomena, like, you know, uh, physicists discover that you know, it should be possible to create coherent light and we should be able to exploit this, this coherent light phenomena to make a thing. And then they go and they make a laser. And so uh, I I think it's just that there are many ways to both discover and exploit phenomena. And, you know, it's like both science and uh, technology have a role in that. And if you, the listener, are, are interested, um, there's a an excellent book about this called uh, "Cycles of Innovation uh, of Invention and Discovery," that it, like really sort of like details how it's it's much more of like a cyclic thing than a uh, straight pipeline. Totally. What did we not cover that you might want to cover? Yeah. So, like you, you've been sort of uh, tweeting and posting a lot of stuff about liberalism recently yeah. and and i was i was just really interested in sort of like where where your head's at around that and like what what do you see as the the sort of like the role of the idea of of liberalism today because like people people talk about liberals but we don't talk about liberalism very much 
Right. Well, yeah, I think there's a few different aspects to that. So I think I think the thing that I that got me excited, sort of interested in this topic is I, I started to, well, one is I read the book Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Roche, I think is how you pronounce it. And it's just a fascinating book and, and really talks about, it, it was written in 1992 and it sort of, it describes, but also predicts basically the sort of threat to the credibility of free speech uh, and even beyond it, like liberal science. And there has been this sort of creeping sort of, you know, some people call it postmodernism, but sort of school of thought that, you know, wh- why is why is free speech so great? <laughs> is is sort of the the question that that it asks, and yeah. and it, and I think in the era of social media, when people are sort of getting um you know sort of trolled all the time, or 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 sort of sometimes even bullied, you know, it, free speech becomes harder to defend when it when it's it's used to attack in some ways. We haven't had to have a defense of, of, of free speech often b- b- before this, in, in some sense, because it was just sort of taken as a given. Mm-hmm. Partially because it's 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 given us so much. A, a lot of this sort of civil rights were built off the, of the back of free speech, but sort of newer generations forget that or never learned it or don't appreciate. It. So, so one is free speech, but then also there's this broader attack, and even even within the universities on sort of the legitimacy of of reason itself. Um, and underneath mm-hmm. that, you know, science and math, and you know maybe two plus two does equal five, and then you know maybe uh, you know maybe science is sort of you know western and thus sort of colonialist and who's to say what's right you know and so you know people used to do all these sorts of terrible things in the name of science and so i i put what i put in liberals i put i put sort of and then there have been attacks on the free markets you know for for, for a long time but in, in my, the way i bucket liberalism is like you know economic liberalism is uh sort of liberal science uh and belief in in, in reason as a as a way we should sort of like run our society and then sort of the marketplace of ideas, uh, you know, political liberalism, um, such that, you know, creating, you know, space for people to share heterodox views, uh, because, you know, some of them might be right and might change the world. So yeah, that, that, that explains my interest. Awesome. Yeah. I, I think that that is under, under thought about, like, I, I, I feel like we, we, we sort of stay at this, like this surface level, but we don't really like talk about like, okay, like what, like what's, what's the philosophy behind what we're talking about and like yeah you, you don't want to get into like you don't want to waste time with it but at the same time it's like it it is good to like at least come to to some kind of consensus yeah no, and i think your example of, of safety earlier and, and jason talks about this too is you know that there are trade-offs and and i think you know we we optimize often for safety in, in a variety of different ways in in terms of like people's feelings, you know, we want them to feel safe and such, you know, speech is a, is a threat to that. So there's a threat there. There's a threat, you know, obviously with the FDA, it's sort of like, you know, the potential experiments we're willing to uh, to have if they lead to potential short-term deaths, even though they might, you know, say, save a lot in the long term. Um, and then also just in terms of economics, in terms of we will justify a lot of government intervention into the economy under the auspice of safety or sort of the short-term, you know, benefit without sort of seeing the, or really wrestling with either the hidden costs or just the more medium to long-term costs. Yeah. So something that I've been thinking about, which is very uncomfortable and I don't, don't know where to go with it, is that sort of the, the idea of the, the like liberal bargain was created in a world that looks very different from the world today. Like humans are still the same, but I, I think that technology has in many ways sort of like changed how the world works. You know, it's, it's, there's, there's many more externalities and we like, you know, it's like the, the people in the the 18th century just like, like literally could not have imagined many of the things that exist today. And so the question is like, how do we resolve those, those two pieces? Yeah. That's an interesting question for sure. Yeah. I, I don't have a good answer, but I think it's again one of those those things that's worth worth grappling with. Let me name a person, and I'll see if you have any sort of interesting differences of, of opinion. Obviously, okay. you a person a lot, but uh, Jason Crawford. Uh, yes. Um, so <laughs> we actually we we had an official online uh, debate, and he still has not responded to me. So I've considered myself to have won that one. Um, <laughs> but basically, we, we we sort of differ on on the the Tealian question of definite versus indefinite optimism. I'm very much in the sort of like, I, I, I think that 
I value planning much more than he does. Um, and I think that that sort of like basically like the, the definite optimist uh, philosophy is, is valuable and important. Yeah. H- how about uh, Jose? Do I, do I have any significant disagreements with Jose? <laughs> I, I, I think so. So this is, this is probably going to, to, to offend many listeners, but like, I, I don't think that longevity and, and really human centric biology is quite deserves the amount of mind share that it gets um, in the, the tech community right now. Like, yes, I, I, I really don't want to die, but at the same time, like we were, I think not paying attention to, to so many things. Like we, we could have like, you know, like giant structures made out of diamond that we use to like launch things into the atmosphere. And we, we really could have flying cars and we could have like atomically precise manufacturing. Um, but so, so I, I think that it's mostly like, I would disagree with him about where we're paying attention in terms of, of uh, technology. Yeah. How about Peter Thiel? Peter Thiel, man. Well, I guess I, I'm Jewish and he's Christian, so we disagree okay. there. <laughs> uh, uh, other than that, man, like from from what I uh, I'm gonna like out myself, um, but like I, I really don't disagree with him too much. I think I think I think actually where where I might disagree with him, and I'm still trying to figure this out, is like I think that the the ideal of the sovereign individual may not be correct in that uh, I think that, that humans are actually fundamentally not just individuals. Like we, we really are a little bit of a herd animal. Like I think of it as there's like a spectrum between spiders and bees and like the sovereign individual view of the world is like very, is like the complete spider end. And I, and I think we're like a little bit more towards bees than that. So, so I would disagree with him about that. Like the individual is the only thing that matters. Yeah. We started the podcast by talking about why, why do we not have awesome sci-fi shit? But why do we not have awesome sci-fi? <laughs> why, oh, why boy. Well, so I, I think one is like, I think we, we, we do, right? So like Seven Eves is pretty great. Like like a lot of the stuff that, that Neil Stevenson writes is, is pretty great. I think the, 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 the core of that question is like, why do, is the majority of the sci-fi that we have right now kind of like paints a... Um, scary or or depressing view of of the future and you know like i i think it's it's a chicken and egg thing where like i, I think that culturally to, to back to your point about culture our, our culture is not that optimistic about the future right like we're we're and, and this just frustrates me because like we could be right like we can you can literally choose to be optimistic about the future like if you look at the possibilities then I think it, it really comes from that. And so it's like, so, so like the, the people who are creating sci-fi are just, um, you know, they're playing to their audience. And so I would, I, I would blame us, uh, like uh, us collectively as, as people who are consumers of, of sci-fi for like not demanding more better sci-fi. Oh, and the other thing is that uh, scientists and engineers and economists don't write enough sci-fi. This is, this is an, another like, like core complaint I have is that we have bad sci-fi because like the people who are writing sci-fi don't know science. And and this is like not meant to, to rag up. Like there, there are some like very good sci-fi written by non-scientists. But um, if you look at like the, 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 the Halcon days of, of science fiction, like of the, the, the fathers of science fiction, um, I think it was like most of them had like technical degrees. Right. And so, so there's, there's something about, understanding like how science and physics works that allows you to create a, a sort of coherent vision of, of what the future could look like that I think makes it much better. Yeah. Sorry. That was a very long answer. No, no, I, I love that. Any difference of opinion with, with Tyler Cowen? Tyler Cowen. Yeah. I think, I think Tyler one is, I think maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic than Tyler. Uh, he, he thinks that, you know, it's like, he, he's like, oh yeah, we might go extinct in like 800 years. And, and I like to think we'll, we'll do better than that. Um, I think I also value planning a little bit more than him. And I, I also have a higher opinion of Shezwan uh, food in Singapore than he does. That's awesome. Are, are any uh, thinkers that come to mind that I, I haven't mentioned that you sort of have a... I think I might, can, can I, can I disagree with you? Would, would that yeah. be fun? 
please. Okay, so I, I think I disagree with you about like kind of the the purpose of the university. Like we we've had some some conversations about this, and I think that you lean much more towards the sort of like it is a a bundle of services that can be unbundled school of thought. Um, like that's that that's my. Uh, understanding of of your position and and like I think that there's something sort of like intangible in that bundling that is not quite unbundable unbundleable enough. No, I, I think that's fair. I think the short answer is we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, and and the question is, can they can it be rebundled in interesting ways or like is Lambda an unbundling or a rebundling? Yeah. I would I would argue that Lambda School is is definitely like an unbundling of the uh, sort of like job training aspect of the university, and I and I would I would actually say like I, I think that that aspect can be unbundled, right? Like I I don't think that it is core to a university's identity to be job training. Yeah. yeah. Oh oh, I thought of another person I, I disagree with. Um, so I disagree with uh, Balaji on his we're all gonna like run away to the cloud. Like like that that Silicon Valley the next Silicon Valley will be in the cloud, like I, I think that that is a very legitimate hypothesis for for software. I just I don't uh, maybe I'm missing something, but like I don't see how that works for like atom based technology. Like if if you're all we're like nowhere near the point where you can like build an airplane with other people in virtual reality and have like robots implemented um, in the world. Yeah, so. You're saying it's it's not going to happen because we're just nowhere near it. Yeah, like like uh, or or, or it's like I, I think yeah that we're we're nowhere near being able to like like I think that they're for um, atom based creative like creativity people will still need to be near each other for a, a long time. Yeah. Do you agree with sort of Peter Thiel's sort of view of 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 sort of history, but also the president in the sense that um, he says the sort of the Google propaganda is that you know, stuff is happening way too fast. Um, and it's either utopian or dystopian. We can argue about that, but you can't argue about how fast it's happening when, when really in Peter's mind, the concern is things are happening too slow. Yes, I, I do agree with that. But uh, again, there's, there's nuance. Like some things are happening much too fast or, or rather like, I think th- things, things in Bitland are happening very fast, but then things in, in Adam land are happening much more slowly than they could. And then also even arguably with computers, like, yeah, we're like creating lots of cool projects and, and products, but like the, the fundamental nature of uh, like how computers work and how we, we create things with them, like really actually hasn't changed that much since the eighties. Um, Jonathan Blow actually has like this amazing talk. Uh, so oh, combination of, of Jonathan Blow's talk and uh, Brett Victor's talks may actually convince you that we're even moving too slowly with uh, computers. Wow. What, what's their punchline? Um, so, so the punchline of Jonathan Blow's talk is basically that, you know, it's like we have exponentially better hardware. So, so it's been a while, but like we, we have exponentially better hardware, but um, like we just keep, we're so bad at, at programming that we just like keep using that hardware to allow ourselves to write shittier and shittier programs. And then the punchline of Brett Victor's talk is that like, it's like APIs are dumb. The like modern file system is, is dumb. And like, basically that all like, all like sort of the modern computing paradigm is built on top of essentially like hacky grad student projects. And there are much like, we know that there are much better ways to do it, but we we don't have a good way of like sort of getting to that that different equilibrium. Yeah, and how, how do we get back on track in atoms or, or the or biggest things holding us back in your mind? Sort of regulation and then culture. Regulation. Um, like again, it, it's how do we get back on track? I, I think in my mind, it's institutional structures regulation and culture, but like all of those feed into each other. This is, I mean, all the things feed into each other. So, you know, it's like, I'm trying to create a different institutional structure, but then like other people have other ideas for uh, structures. But at the end of the day, I I think it, 
yeah, it's, it's like everything feeds into everything else. Right. So you can't say like, it's all downstream of culture. Yeah. So you could snap your finger and like make everybody feel like, like have the same attitude as we did in like the 1950s, then that might change things, but you, you can't do, but we had that attitude because we had rapidly advancing technology, but then we had rapidly advancing technology because we had the attitude. So I, I don't think that there's a straightforward solution. Yeah. And I wonder how much of the attitudes is influenced by things like, you know, being in a cold war or, or, or being in war, like sort of external threats versus like, just once you achieve a certain level of um, success, you know, you just get, you know, sort of comfortable um, or, you know, or a certain level of income inequality starts to change things versus it just being because we're not innovating that much anymore that we're kind of dubious on the whole enterprise. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think the, the external threat is, or, or, or at least maybe not necessarily, like you could almost frame it less as like an external threat, but like as, as sort of like a, a shared goal. Like, yeah. I, I think that that's, that is something that we like really don't have anymore. And, you know, it's like, cause, cause even before the cold war, uh, the, the U S had sort of like the idea of, of manifest destiny and, you know, like that, 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 like, it, it almost seems like hokey now, but like that actually really mattered to people, right? Like it was like, okay, like we are pioneers, like we go and we do stuff. And like, you know, it's like you have to talkville talking about that sort of like that attitude and like that's that sort of like pioneering go like get stuff done attitude. Um, and I think that like sort of having that, that external narrative, you know, it's like, and, and I think, I think that we could have that again, but I, I don't know how to get there. Right. Like, so it's like, we could have like, like manifest, like human, like human manifest destiny. Like our, our, like our purpose is to, to go to the stars to like, like learn everything there is to learn about the universe and to like spread life as far as we can. Um, and basically to, to do amazing things like that, that is that is a possible attitude to have, but you can't like, you can't snap your fingers and, and have that happen. Um, so I think it's up to, to people like you and me to just sort of like relentlessly pound this drum of, of uh, realistic optimism of like, well, you know, it's like, yeah, like there are things that are, are not great in the world, but um, they, they can be better. And, and we can, we can do that like through, through building. I don't know. It's like, like I, I, I by analogy, like I, I, I like to think about how people in the middle ages would build cathedrals that like they would never see the completion of, and their kids would never see the completion of, and like their grandkids maybe would never see the completion of, but like they, they knew that they were doing it and like they, they were doing it for a higher purpose that was uh, their religion. And, and we don't really have that anymore either. So it's like, we need to figure out what that, what that shared purpose we could, we could go after is. Yeah. I, uh, and how can you have a shared or can you have shared or how can we create shared purpose without having to need a common enemy? Yeah. Challenge. <laughs> I, I like to think that it's possible, maybe not a common enemy, but we should, we could like, this, this is going to offend so many people like that. We could basically like think of nature as our, our common opponent. Um, and, and not in the, like, we're going to go kill it way, but in the, like, like if you go back to natural phenomena, like we, we need, like, like those are like the crown jewels of, of nature. And like, we can like go and like conquer more and more of it. Um, and, and like any good conquerors, like you, you actually like want to, be be nice to to the people that you conquer right so it's like i'm not saying like burn down all the forests you actually want to to take care of that but if you actually like think of it it's like our goal is to like basically like take over nature and like the very fundamental workings of it like that that might be able to stand in for for a shared enemy yeah it's fascinating um i don't know how, like we do have this sort of nature nirvana cultural thing of natural is always better than unnatural um, yeah, and I, I, I like I just disagree with that. Like, like E. coli is is natural. Um, right. No, Ebola is is all natural. But, but and it's like, and and I think it's it, it's you, you, people like I, I think that there is something like I, I think that 
in the beginning, we were like, we were really terrible conquerors, right? Like, cause we would go and we'd pollute things and we'd cut down the forests and like, we just know how to do it better now. And so we can still like have that, like we are going to, like we are the masters of the world and we can still like do that without sort of like despoiling everything. Like, I, I think that's a false dichotomy. Yeah, totally. It, 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 I wonder if attitudes will, will evolve at some point in that direction as sort of our technology just gets better and better or if nature is just really good at marketing. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, so, so here my, my hope is that, you know, it's like what, like instead of like these, these massive shifts that we're talking about, like the things that like we as individuals can do is we can sort of provide we can provide hope. We can provide examples. Like, you know, people like to rag on Elon Musk, but what he does do is he like, he makes people, he fills people with wonder, right? Like you, you watch like two rockets landing at the same time and that fills you with wonder. And it's like, I think that if we uh, like, like, you know, it's like a few individuals go and try to create more examples like that, like that, sort of at least can can provide that sort of like that that glimmer of hope where, where where all other lights have gone out and then like that might possibly be able to to get us moving in the right direction but it's hard right it's it's hard and it might not work yeah by the way there's this mark Andreessen quote i think he's quoting someone else he says something like someone's asking him you know but will we be happier in this new world and he goes I'm not saying you'll be happy, but you'll be unhappy in new, interesting, and important ways. Yes. <laughs> May we all be unhappy in new, interesting, and important ways. Totally. Yeah. My, cool. my guest has been uh, Ben Reinhardt. Uh, again, I would highly recommend uh, Idea Machines as, as a podcast. Ben also has a, a fascinating blog. Ben, anywhere else you want to point people to? Very, like, I love talking to people on Twitter. If you if you want to chat, just, just reach out. But yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.